Hi friends, Dallas here with a couple announcements. First of all, you can follow me on Instagram if you don't know already. My handle is bestowing the brush, one word. I share stories, uh, usually short tutorials or things that help me in drawing lessons and some of my nature journaling journey. The photo feed is a visual companion to this podcast and I do a bit of microblogging there. Follow me to see that. Otherwise, if you want to get in touch with me, my email is bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. You can email me with questions, comments about drawing or any other pertinent subject. I'd love to hear from you, so get over there and do that. The bigger announcement, though, that I'm pretty excited about is that upcoming in late January, I will be having my first Instagram Live event, and that will be Saturday, January 26th. I haven't pinned a time yet down, um, but hopefully if you are listening to this and if you want to give me feedback when a good time for you would be, to see that, please, like I said, email me, Instagram me. Hey, I want this to be a conversation, so you should just let me know when you're available. Live would be fun. Great. I'm so excited. Can't wait. See you there. Welcome back to the show. This is Bestowing the Brush, and I'm your host, Dallas Noctegal. Thanks for joining me here. As always, I recommend a cup of tea while you listen. And I'm excited to be spending some time talking about the things that we need to keep in mind when we are teaching uh, drawing lessons to our children. And really, some of these can apply over into other subjects. So it is for you, I think, to determine how the principle carries out. And I think that we'll see here in these things that I have highlighted and underlined from Frederick J. Glass, who wrote Drawing, Design, and Craftwork. These little excerpts are just really good mental guidelines for you to how you're thinking about your student and how you're thinking about this thing that you're doing right now, keeping in mind the most important things. So we'll get right into things here. This is something mentioned early on under a heading entitled First Lessons. Bad drawing is the result of wrong thinking, and the mental effort made by the child is of greater importance than the actual drawing. Aim then at teaching the child to think. Facility and expression will follow. In other words, here we have a first things first. If we ultimately are not teaching the, t- the child to think, then there will be left nothing for the child much to express with any fidelity. So I like reminders like this because it just brings you back to why you're doing this. A way you can apply this, I think, is supplying your student with the time to think about the subject matter and to look at it and observe it 
also just for your own how you're thinking after things take place if you've looked at what they've done and it's not quite up to your standards perhaps you aren't taking into account the age of the child or their where they're at and their abilities since they're a unique person we can get to thinking that just because something isn't beautiful and the most well composed and the most finished on the page that your efforts are just all in vain well this reminder is that mental effort has been spent whether or not it shows up on the page the act of getting the child in front of the thing and giving them the materials you have already supplied the feast if you will okay something else glass says early on as well see that the lines are free bold and decided for self-reliance and decision are worth developing so the lines that you have observed yourself making or your students are they free bold and decided because lines like that would reflect self-reliance and decision making which are worth developing so again here we see that the important thing is is what is going on in the mind of the child not necessarily the reflection that we get to see on the page carrying on young children are quite confident usually and will tackle anything from a cathedral to an express train the timidity and diffidence that comes later are too often the results of unintelligent teaching and carping criticism on the part of the teacher. I hear of so many cases of people that say that they were discouraged from drawing at a young age and making art because, in, in my opinion, the ignorance of the teacher in, in this principle that I've stated here, the criticizing, and this is a, obviously a negative connotation to the word carping criticism so there's good critique criticism and that's a different thing than what this is saying this is saying hmm maybe i'll call it i guess unintelligent teaching that's what it says there so in my opinion as the guide for your student you eventually want to give good feedback and criticism but I think, especially at early ages, those things can just be left to outside this time conversations if the child asks you for your opinion or just wants to show you something that they're proud that they made. Then I think that the door is open there for a little bit of talk about it. I think I would advise you to keep your comments 
little and be sure to point out something in the drawing that shows good observation and good thinking. An example I can think of is a really early drawing that one of my children did and it was out in plain air and he picked this little patch of dandelions to draw. And so, I mean, yes, sometimes these drawings will be crude because they're five, six years old, maybe at their earliest starting out. Um, but in his drawing, he had one of the stems, all of the stems were green, except for one stem that was a little reddish brown and was drooping over. And he drew that. He drew the, th the thing that he saw. He didn't see all of them being upright stems. So that would have been a good comment for me to make if he would have asked me what I thought of the drawing. And I don't even remember if he did or not. I may have volunteered that later on in the same section. And it is better to suggest improvement than to condemn because we do not understand. Better take it that we have lost the power of reading these shorthand notes than try to impose our own conception. Try to enter into the child's thoughts and help to mold and direct. I like how he says that because it kind of puts us on the same playing field intellectually. He, I think what he's doing because he's saying that we have ignorance on our part if we can't understand something in a drawing that they are pretty sure that they tried to convey clearly. So I like that that's definitely a check on my attitude or my pride sometimes when I'm thinking that I can really understand everything as it is on the page and maybe I don't so maybe I need to ask more questions this is a comment he makes in his time where he says that you're going to spend a little bit of looking before you actually do the act of drawing his comment here is that point these things out. Um, this is things like height and the length and how they compare with one another and what their relations are. Taking care not to tire the children before allowing them to draw. So I think we could use the Charlotte Mason principle of short lessons here and keeping in mind that this part of the lesson doesn't need to carry on because we don't have that much time for each but we just we do need to make sure we're not rushing into things with beginning without observing here's something interesting he says geometric models can be employed to demonstrate principles but when possible it is better to use common objects i like that piece of advice too because more often seeing things in real life, there's never a situation where you're going to just see all these geometric shapes 
on a table in a still life setting. And so that can tend to be a little bit artificial if you're trying to kind of clinically set up all of your still life situations. It's good to use things around your home. And where have we heard that before? Use acorns you've collected as math counters. Use the real things in the child's environment. This is part of the the living atmosphere of the school is that this is where the child lives. Things in his atmosphere can lend themselves to his education. In this section where he's talking about drawing ellipses, which are an oval shape, he says a considerable amount of practice will be required to force home these principles so that the pupil will be able to draw the ellipses correctly in any position. So we're talking about a little bit of concerted practice in order to acquire the accuracy. But later he says the pupils will obtain a more intelligent grasp of the form and consequently a surer method of representing it. At this stage of the pupil's development, the teacher cannot afford to let details be scamped. It is not merely the ability to draw that is involved, but also the character of the pupil. Once again, we see that we have this ability and then this character element. I think this principle carries over into other subjects. This just has me thinking, my children's education is so much of it is not going to be something that I can see. This is an education for their life, their entire life. So they may not remember something in their education until they're my age or older. I sometimes have little things in my memory that call me back to connections that I'm just now making. So do not be discouraged when maybe one lesson is building a little bit more of the character side of your child and not so much showing on the page. He says, a difficulty overcome will render other problems easier, at the same time developing habits of concentration. The length to which details should be carried is a delicate matter to decide, for little good can come of keeping pupils at a task from which all interest has vanished. So definitely keeping the interest. And this may be one reason why W.G. Collingswood of the Fiesole Club papers And then also Ruskin talks about the same thing to where when you're painting or drawing something, putting it at a distance that muddies the details for you, it's a little better so that you can concentrate more on the accuracy of the form, leaving details to melt into the object. We just tend to focus too much on details and then then it makes the entire piece inaccurate when you have focused on something so long, now you're not able to see the big picture and how other parts of what you're creating are disproportionate or proportionate. 
Here's where I get a little confused. Glass is stating that they should be taught to gauge the relative sizes of different parts, at first with the eye alone. For the subject aimed at is to train the eye to see, rather than to impart knowledge of mechanical aids. The pencil held at arm's length between the eye and the object may be used to correct the measurements after they have been gauged by the eye, but a series of measurements taken with the pencil and set down on paper without a preliminary judgment by the eye is of little value. Hold up there, because Ruskin said something nearly just about opposite to that. I'm going to grab the laws of Fiesole. That word is Italian, and I think I've said it wrong several times. So this is John Ruskin, the laws of Fiesole, principles of drawing and painting from the Tuscan masters. A little bit of background on this book, and to give you some context, is that Fiesole is an Italian city, and so this would be art principles as discovered and practiced in Tuscan painters from the years 1200 to 1500. And many of you know that is the Renaissance period of art and thought. So many things happened. He is talking about errors that he's trying to correct in his teaching versus what has been done in the popular system up until now. He says the first error in that system is the forbidding accuracy of measurement and enforcing the practice of guessing at the size of objects. Now it is indeed often well to outline at first by the eye and afterwards to correct the drawing by measurement, but under the present method, the student finishes his inaccurate drawing to the end and his mind is thus, during the whole progress of his work, accustomed to falseness in every contour. Such a practice is not to be characterized as merely harmful. It is ruinous. No student who has sustained the injury of being thus accustomed to false contours can ever recover precision of sight. Nor is this all. He cannot so much as attain to the first conditions of art judgment. For a fine work of art differs from a vulgar one of subtleties of line which the most perfect measurement is not alone delicate enough to detect, but to which precision of attempted measurements directs the attention, while the security of boundaries within which maximum error must be restrained enables the hand gradually to approach the perfectness which instruments cannot. So maybe after all they actually aren't saying opposite things because the, the, the subtlety between the two was that Ruskin here is saying that the student of the popular system has put down all his false contours that he's just seeing with his eye and not measuring, but then he's to go back and then to correct, whereas I think both of them are just saying it is valuable to look at something with the eye to follow the contours, but then to get on by measuring. And I like how he says that, but to which precision of attempted measurements directs the attention, while the security of boundaries within which maximum error 
must be restrained, enables the hand gradually to approach the perfectness which instruments cannot. See, this is why I have had to put this book down quite a bit while reading it. Either the run-on sentences get me lost a little bit, um, or I don't know, it's maybe just so different from how I would naturally think to draw. If you can't tell by now, I am I really appreciate Ruskin. I appreciate Ruskin and his love of accuracy and beauty. I am still trying to get fully on board with a lot of his ideas. And I don't have to be. But, but you know what? He makes a pretty convincing case a lot of the time. So he must have had some experience in debate. So real artists are under laws. I do agree with that. I think that we are under laws and it's why we have beauty in the world. If we're just going to carry on with Ruskin here, that was what he said was the first error. Now the second error in the existing system is the enforcement of the execution of finished drawings in light and shade before the student has acquired delicacy of sight enough to observe their gradations. It requires the most careful and patient teaching to develop this faculty, and it can only be developed at all by rapid and various practice from natural objects, during which the attention of the student must be directed only to the facts of the shadows themselves, and not at all arrested on methods of producing them. He may even be allowed to produce them as he likes or as he can, the thing required of him being only that the shade be of the right darkness, of the right shape, and in the right relation to other shades round it, and not at all that it shall be prettily cross-hatched or deceptively transparent. But at present, the only virtues required in shadow are that it shall be pretty in texture and picturesquely effective. And that it is not thought of the smallest consequence that it should be in the right place or of the right depth. And the consequence is that the student remains, when he becomes a painter, a mere manufacturer of conventional shadows of agreeable texture, and to the end of his life incapable of perceiving the conditions of the simplest natural passage of chiaroscuro. That's a fancy word for lights and shadows and the way that they actually fall against forms naturally what he's saying here reminds me of i guess a good term for it i'm not remembering the exact term right now and i am not gonna look it up but it's like drawing things the way that you think that they should be in a perfect vacuum so drawing some cylinder or something that's not really in front of you but it's drawing instruction revolving around the way that light should be hitting this cylinder and then the casted shadow coming from it and I think I'm explaining it poorly here but basically it's, you're not observing the shadow, the shape of the shadow as it actually is in front of you. 
you're kind of putting it into a perfect situation that you think it should be in your head. And as we know, things in real life do not always follow the same laws and light situations as they would in like a pristine sort of modeled still life setup. Things have reflections and light is refracting from other objects onto that object. Things are foreshortened in space. Perhaps the thing is leaning one way or another because it's a, the cylinder is the cylinder of a tree branch, which goes a lot of different directions. So I will close with thoughts that I carry with me that I'm not going to get open right now and read from the volume, but things that I know when you're educating with the Charlotte Mason method the child is a person that is unique and so I think we can all take the time and patience to regard them with that respect that they may see things differently than we do and so making unintelligent snap criticisms of the work that they've done sometimes isn't helpful, usually isn't helpful. We can regard them more, you know what, I am going to, I'm going to open her volume. I think it's in volume one, guys. Really what I wanted to say was that in a paraphrase of Mason, so this is a true narration, I do not have it in front of me, is that children have art in them. And as their guide and teacher, I think that we can learn to draw that out of them instead of squashing their, their true desire and curiosity to, to create art, to draw. It's it's what we do as created beings. We create because we were created and God gave us this wonderful ability to mimic him and reflect his glory in this way. That's why I believe drawing is for every person and we don't ever grow out of it. If up until this point, you have thought that drawing is just for your students to learn or just for your children to learn, I'll challenge you and I will encourage you to draw for you to make art or make a created thing. Being an image bearer, we have been given that ability. Okay, at some point I'm going to find that passage I was talking about. That'll be a happy day and I'll share. It's very good. This is the part of the show where it's going to be your weekly dose of Mason. I'll share what I'm reading in her volumes that we're going through. This time it struck me to read in ourselves on page 160 under the heading, The Realm of Fiction, Essential and Accidental Truth. It's actually on the heading just below that. The value of fiction depends on the worth of the writer. But you will see at once that the value of fiction as a moral teacher depends upon the wisdom, insight, and goodness of the writer. That a shallow mind will give false and shallow teaching, and therefore that it is only the best fiction that is lawful reading, 
because in no other shall we find this sort of essential truth. What a good reason to choose living books. Good quality literary value, high moral value because of the integrity of the writer. These are just things that in our modern times, we don't hold every author to. We certainly don't. Anyone and everyone can publish a book nowadays. I'll encourage you parents and caretakers and teachers to be discerning about the fiction and the reading material that your children read and that you read to them. It should be from good writers who have a good moral sense and it just shows in their fiction. This is not the writer writing down a sermon for us to sit under and to be preached at. This is just essential truths that shine forth in their writing. That we remember the Bible is written in narrative form. And so while it's not fiction, it's, it's true and it's essentially true. And most of it is historically true. We are people who learn through stories. So I really respect how Mason saw that in the reading of the Bible. And as it influenced her and all of her teaching principles, it truly is just a reflection of a faithful believer in God, that she would look to the scriptures and would look to the fact that God, in his infinite wisdom, wrote down the story of creation and redemption in a book, primarily stories, and a bunch of poetry. I mean, we have all genres in the Bible. So it's so interesting to me that sometimes we forget those things. Okay, thanks for coming along with me today as I read through some helpful reminders of the teaching of children in drawing and in character building, really. And I'll ask you, what are some ways that you have worked these principles into your school life and into your drawing, whether personal or leading your students there? I'd love to hear either on uh, my email address, bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as well. I may not have ever mentioned that on the podcast yet. I'm there. You'll see lots of visuals that I talk about from this Airstream. We can connect. So let me know what you think about these reminders I've given you from different writers. And would you disagree? Would you disagree with anything I've said? And do you have any questions? The lines of communication are open and I welcome your feedback and your questions. So I'll see you later, everyone. I hope you have a good week and get out there and draw. I'll see you guys later.